Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome back to our two-part masterclass with Dr. Sam Bunsley and Dr. JP Canero on understanding, talking about, and shifting the narratives we all carry about musculoskeletal pain. Today, we build on last week's chat where Sam and JP explained the dominant ways that patients think about chronic musculoskeletal pain, and we used the example of osteoarthritis. If you haven't had a chance to listen yet, it's absolutely worth taking the 17 minutes to catch part one before you jump into today's part two episode. What we're doing today is exploring the explicit and implicit messages that you communicate with your words and your actions when you work with patients. Sam and JP share some wonderful tips on communicating and on developing your own practice as a musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinician. Sam's opening our conversation today by inviting JP to share a conversation that he had with a patient about joint replacement surgery. Here's Sam. JP, you mentioned that you know when when somebody does present and they you do feel like they're at the point where they do need surgery. We've often spoken about this, haven't we? Um, making sure that we don't see surgery for somebody with you know really severe osteoarthritis as being a failure. Because this young boy, he's young, he's sixty-four, sixty-eight, and I saw him That's a young. while ago. That counts yeah, as young, exactly, exactly. And he came in and he had actually hip pain, and he said, "Look, I'm coming here because you saw one of my friends, and he spoke highly of you, but I'm I'm booked for surgery." So I'm just here for a little bit of a problem before I go for surgery. So he was really rigid in his belief. But when you listen to his story, he's not a rigid man. He's a musician. He's a he's like he's really open-minded. He's he loves gardening, for example. So it didn't really match where he was going with that. And surgery for him was a massive obstacle for him to be able to care for his wife, who's got eyesight problems and heading towards the need of a wheelchair. It wasn't even good timing for him to have that. And we started doing exercises, and I said, okay, I'll give a few weeks. And I said, no, we need to give this six months. And, and that's an important point as well, where I think clinicians can shoot themselves in the, in the foot. And I've done this many times. You want to provide something that is quick, and actually it's not quick. And I didn't even say three months. I said, look, six months. To be honest, if I was you, if I was in your shoes, I'll be giving myself a year. But six months is what we're going to do, and this this is the problem. And in six months, we'll make a decision. If in three months you're deteriorating, I'll be the first person to say, you know, let's change routes. And in three months, oh, I saw him with some regularity. In three months, he goes, we are heading in a good direction here. I'm confident this is going to work. In six months, he was doing really well. A year later, he came back. And he was really sad, wasn't himself. And he said, look, I'm really sad to do this to you, but I think we lost the battle. I think we, you know, we need to, I will need to have surgery. And he was kind of thinking that I would be disappointed in him. And this guy put everything in the line, but his pain at night really increased. He started losing quite a bit of range in that hip. And whenever he tried to do something, it really interfered with his day-to-day life. And, and I said, look, mate, your, your clinical presentation really changed. And I'm not disappointed at you. I'm actually really proud of what we've done. And I think that 
you having surgery is the best thing that you can do. But let's just look back at where you were and where you are now. Look at your health. You lost weight. You were sleeping better up until the point that, you know, the pain became an issue for him. He was more engaged in physical activity. So you're going to pick this up as soon as you have the surgery. So surgery can be seen sometimes as a failure to conservative rehab. And in fact, for some people, is the next step that they need to have. Surgery sometimes is necessary. I think it's a matter of going, who is the surgery for? Are you in a good condition physically and mentally to have the surgery? Are you at risk of being worse for the surgery? And do you need it? Because what does the surgery do? It changes your range. And unless you do, like, if pain and night becomes a big problem and you can't manage, you can't modify it, then that's another potential indicator. But I think that that idea that surgery does not mean failure is really important for clinicians and for patients. For sure. I'm really glad that you bring that up. And thanks for getting us to that place, Sam. What I'm hearing is there's a lot of reframing the clinician's role to one of more coaching and supporting as opposed to telling and doing. Sam, you've written or you've both contributed to a beautiful editorial series that JOSPT has recently published, and we'll link to the three editorials in the series. And in those editorials, you had five tips for clinicians about how we as as health professionals can speak with patients about their osteoarthritis. Sam, what are those five tips? Yes, well, we've touched on some of those, Claire. Look, we, you know, we, we touched in the paper there and, and, and JP has, has um, given us some really nice examples of really starting by making sure that we're acknowledging that um, osteoarthritis is more than just a physical experience. So we talk about the importance of a clinician asking about the broader impacts of osteoarthritis too. So on people's psychological, social, you know, their cultural, spiritual, even well-being and the importance of acknowledging and validating those impacts, you know, and focusing on those relational aspects of, of care are really important to create that sort of, I guess, context of, of someone feeling safe, someone feeling like they've got the trust with that clinician, especially if we're offering them new information, which is often quite challenging to people. You know, we have these ideas of, of we have these since we're really young. We hold on to them since we're a child. We learn that, you know, to be careful of putting our, our hand on the, on the hot plate we actually grow up with quite a strong impairment narrative throughout our lives. So to then come to a point where a clinician might be offering different information, it's really important that that person feels that they're in a space where they can share their concerns, their their fears, their doubts, and really engage in this information, engage in this new understanding you're offering them. So really that's our first one is around the importance of of acknowledging that. You know, we've talked a little bit about words or terms or phrases that we we might want to avoid. So things like the bone on bone, the degeneration, the wear and tear, these these really joint centric, I guess, um, words, very impairment focused, deficit based words. And instead to be embracing words like nourishing, health, strong activity, really emphasizing the modifiable aspects of um, the osteoarthritis experience that people can have some agency over. One of the things I did want to talk about too is that importance of making sure that our words also align with our actions. And we talk about as well, if, we, if we're trying to move away from being joint-centric and, and being more holistic, and, and JP's provided us with lovely examples of that, you know, we want to make sure that we're not, for example, offering this participatory-based sort of narrative and, and approach, but then be designing an intervention specifically on strengthening somebody's knee muscles, for example. You know, let's think about this more as, you know, we, we can target some of these modifiable factors that are at a more sort of systemic level too. So thinking about physical activity, 
exercise that you know can enhance somebody's cardiovascular you know broader for the broader health benefits maybe it's about getting them into a walking group and encouraging that sort of social participation as well the thinking about that whole person on that note too you know I wanted to mention that we often think about so you know the messaging through our words but through our actions but we often don't think about our the images as well and that's something which I think is interesting too when we look around you know a typical physio clinic for example we might see you know the skeleton hanging in the corner and and those sort of disembodied posters with you know tendons and muscles and and bones all on display and um this really does communicate that strong you know impairment frame too so you know what could we be displaying instead of you know images of people being strong and participating in life a colleague of mine often talks about here at the hospital where I, where I work the amputee gym has has is really full of images with people you know um, that without a limb and they're achieving wonderful things you know athletes competing and swimming and rock climbing this is really positive images and we tend not to think about those in in the context of osteoarthritis care focusing on coaching and not trying to fix the condition which is kind of really acceptable when you look at other chronic health conditions right if a patient has diabetes they've got asthma they've got cardiac disease or high blood pressure, pain is another expression of our health. The, the tricky thing, I think, for clinicians is that the anatomical narrative in osteoarthritis is really strong and it's really relevant for a lot of people. So if you've got significant changes in the knee and you have muscle inhibition and you've got muscle guarding, that physical element is really powerful to drive sensitivity in the joint. But there's a difference between understanding a joint as being sensitive and understanding a joint as being damaged. Because they 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 drive very different behaviors, both from the patient and the clinician. One of the elements that I and I know you alluded to this before, Claire, that I would like to bring to attention is that one of the first things that clinicians need to do is to reflect on how would they respond if they had this diagnosis, you know, how have you responded in the past to having pain? What was your first port of call? Did you run to get an x-ray? Did you run to get an MRI? Or you just go, well, I look back at the last six weeks and I've been pretty stressed, not sleeping well, not exercising. I'm a bit, you know, life is a bit bleh, too much for me right now. And my knee got sore. That is a pretty good context to create what? Inflammatory responses, to have an unhealthy environment, you know, your knee becomes the target as an expression of your health. For other people, that same context could lead to cold sores, could lead to stomach pain, could lead to a cardiac arrest. So having that broad health perspective is really important, but you have to believe it and, and you have to reflect on it. Because if I think and, and, and for young clinicians, it's, it's tricky sometimes to put themselves in the shoes of a patient with osteoarthritis because if they never had a traumatic injury or if they don't have an experience around the house with someone with osteoarthritis, it's hard to relate. And so I think they, they need to, to think, you know, what do I think about pain? When I had back pain, when I had shoulder pain, how did I respond? So that's a, a really important point. So do I really believe in this biopsychosocial perspective? Uh, because that will come through in your implicit messages to your patients. Because you can have a really wonderful interview, you can provide really good education, but then you tell patients to be careful and to stop when there is pain. The other element, I think, is to, you know, 
telling someone to become a coach. It's tricky because that's not how we've been trained. We've been trained to fix people. And so one of the, the, the things that I would suggest is sit in with people that are more senior than you or with other colleagues and watch them working. You know, pick up on, not on how they solve the problem, but, you know, their, their language, the way they communicate with patients, how they create rapport, how they put the whole package together. Then get a little camera, put in the corner of your room and record yourself with a patient. Patients are really cool with that. And you say, look, this is from my own learning. Then you watch it. You know, there might be some cringe-worthy moments. I can tell you that when I did that, I definitely had some moments that I went, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. But you really pick up on mannerism. You pick up on, you know, I felt like I really let the patient, you know, talk to, tell the story. And then when you listen, it's like me cutting them every two minutes. I'm going, oh my God, they can't talk. So that is incredible learning opportunity. And then having a mentor that can help you with that process. And when you're stuck with a patient, you know, don't give up on a patient. Just take it to a colleague and go, hey, can we have a look at this together? Do a combined session. So that mentorship, which is really strong in medicine, probably not that strong in physiotherapy, at least not in Australia. I think it's really important, and particularly for young clinicians. You know, they leave university with a lot of knowledge, but not a lot of skills to deal with people and how to communicate. So having mentorship towards towards that, I think it's really important in their journey. I totally agree. And I think that's a beautiful place for us to finish our conversation today. So Dr. Sam Bunsley, Dr. JP Canero, thanks so much for joining me on JOSPT Insights and helping us get better at listening and talking with people and and helping people explore their pain and what it really means. It's been it's been a privilege having you both join me. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for the opportunity, Claire. Thank you so much. Folks, that's the last of our regular JOSPT Insights episodes for 2023. A big thanks to everyone who has listened, shared episodes with colleagues, offered feedback and requested guests in 2023. Whether you're new to the podcast or a stalwart subscriber, we are so grateful for all the support and we're always happy to hear your feedback. I have to also offer a big thanks to my superstar co-hosts, Drs. Chelsea Cooman and Dan Chapman. You both do the best interviews and it's an absolute joy to work with you to bring JOSPT Insights to our listeners. The JOSPT Insights team is taking a few weeks off now for the holidays and we will see you back in January 2024 with more JOSPT Insights. Our very best wishes to you and those you love for a restful end to 2023 and a productive and safe 2024. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm